Uh, yeah, so as Sylvia said, we're going to carry on with Act today. Um, there was just a bit of confusion with, you know, dates we had free and stuff. So, um, yeah, but we felt like it was it would be a bit silly to miss a bit out of Act, seeing as we're trying to follow the whole thing. Um, so, we're, I'm going to read from its Act, chapter 13, verses 1 to 12. And I'm reading in the English Standard Version. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So this is an interesting reading. Every time I'm like, well, which one have I got this week? And it's either like, yeah, I like that one, or oh, that's going to be, it's going to take some research. Um, so we're back in the church in Antioch. And just in case you're not sure where we are, so the church in Antioch, uh, Barnabas was sent there from Jerusalem uh, because quite a lot of Gentiles had come to the faith there. Um, and so Barnabas went there and he was, it seems, leading the church. And at one point he goes and he collects uh, Paul, uh, formerly known as Saul, from Tarsus. And he brings him to join him in leading the church there. And then later we see Barnabas and Paul are sent to Jerusalem because there's a prophet called Agabus who predicted there's going to be a famine. Um, so they take a, some uh, financial support, some some help to the church in Jerusalem from the believers in Antioch. And here we are, they've, they've just got back from that mission to Jerusalem. Now, if you, you notice that um, it talks about the prophets and teachers at the beginning in Antioch. And Barnabas is mentioned first. And actually, at the beginning of the book of Acts, Barnabas is always mentioned before Paul. And it seems that, yeah, Barnabas was probably the leader of the church in Antioch. But there's quite a few 
uh, people mentioned here. So there's Barnabas, there's Paul, but there's others too. And they were obviously well known among the believers because he mentions them specifically. So they had quite a strong team. They, they, had, some, they had some good people there. And what were these people doing? What were these believers doing? Well, as we, um, we joined them, it shows that they were fasting and worshipping. Now, the bedrock of the life of faith is our relationship with God. You know, we can get caught up in what we're doing, the tasks that we do for God, but that is not what it's all about. It all starts and it all ends with our relationship with God. So it makes sense that these guys are spending time fasting and worshipping. And I was thinking about, um, with worship, how worship is good when we're declaring who God is, when we're focusing on him, we're looking at him, and we're talking about who he is. But actually, there has to be a space in worship, I feel, for us to just incline our hearts to God, and for it not to be just us talking at him, but for us to be in relationship with him and listening to him too. And that was obviously what was going on here. You know, they were fasting. People do that in a time when they are really seeking God. And they were worshipping. They were inclining their hearts to God. And that is when he can really give us direction. And that's what he does in this verse. He gives them a mission. He sends Paul and Barnabas. Um, but what I found interesting as well, I can't remember who, I think it fitted with maybe what Joe was read. read that I find it really interesting that they've done this um, worshipping and fasting, then they get a call, and then they do some more fasting and prayer. And I think it demonstrates this lifestyle of dependency on God. It's not listen for long enough to hear what we're supposed to do and then go and sort it out yourself. It's every step. Every step we do, hand in hand with the Spirit. Because he does know best. And I think it also demonstrates about the church in Antioch their, that their obedience so Tom Wright mentions in his commentary on Acts, you know, Barnabas, it looked like, was the leader of the church there. Paul was a big player in the church there. And then God says, no, those two guys need to go somewhere else. And you don't often think about the practical considerations. It was probably really inconvenient for the church in Antioch to have these two guys leave. But that's obedience. You know, what else is our life about with God other than listening to what he says? He's got to be in the lead. Um, so yeah, this obedience, and then this obedience, it leads to the spread of the gospel even wider. So Acts just showing exactly what Jesus said, where he said that he was sending them with the good news to Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we see that mission field expanding all the time. Um, and one thing that I, yeah, that I did... Uh, notice in this um, passage and it comes up in a lot of other passages too is that when um, they Paul moves to a new missionary field he always visits the synagogues first he always goes to the synagogues first and it's interesting because actually he called himself the apostle to the Gentiles but he always checked in with the synagogue with the Jews first and I find that quite interesting because I really love that part of God um, that Jesus really shows us very clearly in the, in the flesh, that he, he goes after the unexpected people, you know, the, the people that you wouldn't expect to be Christians. 
you know, and that Jesus said that he came for the lost. He came for the sick. He was with the outcasts. And I really love that about him. But even though that is very true, it's not that God shows partiality to those people. Actually, he offers, his invitation is to everyone. He invites everyone. And I think that this shows that, that um, he goes to the Jews first. He is inviting the Jews along, but it is up to them whether they come. And what, even though he is inviting everyone, he hasn't got partiality um, towards one type of person. Actually, it is more often, it seems, that it is the needy and it is the outsiders, and it is the outcasts, and the unexpected people who are the ones who actually answer. So in this passage, we, we meet Bar Jesus. Bar Jesus is a sorcerer. Um, and he's actually the second sorcerer we meet in the book of Acts. I don't know if you remember, there was one earlier called Simon. And in um, this, this sorcerer, Paul and Barnabas, they meet with opposition. But it's, it's kind of a little bit different, this opposition, to some of the other opposition we see in the book of Acts. There's a lot of violent opposition to the, um, to the believers as they try to spread the gospel. But actually, this one, it's, it feels a bit different. It's more like meddling. It's more like this um, bar Jesus is, is trying to speak against them. He was probably putting them down. He was, he was just trying to get in the way of them, getting between them and the proconsul. Um, and it just made me think that actually this kind of opposition is probably more familiar to us. Now, we read about the other kind of opposition, but we don't see it very often, physical violence and things like that. But meddling, people talking about you, people putting you down, we've probably seen more of that. But So what is opposition? How do we react to opposition? I was thinking about how sometimes it's really easy. Our first instinct is to hide from opposition. Another one that I know that I experience is it can make you question yourself. It can make you question if you're going the right way. But if you think about it, opposition was part and parcel of Jesus' life and the early believers. It came all the time, thick and fast. And, you know, some would say, I have a friend who says, who often says that if you hit opposition, it shows that you're going in the right direction. Because actually, the devil, he doesn't oppose darkness. He opposes light. So it's when you're bringing light into a place, that's when the devil's going to come against you hard. So sometimes it's even a good sign. My friend says that and laughs, and I'm like, but we're in the middle of something really hard. <laughs> um, but she sees it as a good sign. Um, and here, this, this opposition that they're facing here, it leads to a confrontation, a conversation a tense conversation. <laughs> um, and I was thinking about this, I was thinking about confrontation and how as a society, we don't always like confrontation. My father-in-law will tell you that I'm not particularly afraid of confrontation. We talk about this a lot. I, I don't, I, I, you know, I'm not somebody who really shies away from it that much. But, uh, but saying, having said that, being a fairly confident person, you know, debate team in school, blah-de-blah, it still doesn't feel comfortable to be in conflict with someone. Um, however, I think it is really necessary for growth. Obviously, I don't mean conflict for the sake of conflict. I don't mean bickering and putting other people down. 
but actually things need to be faced. That's what I'm talking about. I read a... Uh, yeah, I, before I was preparing this, I was watching a TV show this week, and it, uh, it quoted something, and I just thought that this quote really rang true for, for me and what I'm trying to say here. And the quote is, Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And it's a, a quote by James Baldwin. I think he was more referring to civil rights, so he was um, a, a black author. But I do really like that, and that really rings true for me. If you want to grow, you need to face things, and you need to push through things. Well, I, another thing I found really interesting in this passage is that Paul, it says that Paul looked at the sorcerer intently. Now, I don't know if you remember, but actually earlier on in Acts, um, the same phrase is used for Peter when he uh, heals the beggar outside the temple. It says exactly the same thing, that Peter looked at him intently. And I, I, I spoke on that passage too. And I remember saying that, you know, and it rings true for me, you know, the way that actually when you pray for somebody, the Holy Spirit can help you to really see someone the way that God sees them. God really sees you. There is nothing you can hide. And in all honesty, for the most part, when I get that, if I'm praying for someone, it's often the beauty of someone I see. God often uses me to encourage people, really. But this is quite a different um, representation of that. And it's not a healing. What, what Paul sees here in Elemas is his intentions and his motivations. And what he sees, it's not good. And I'll read you about this, what he says again, because it's quite harsh. In verse 10, sorry. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. I'm not sure if I can think of a, a worse um, to, yeah, name to call someone than the son of the devil. Um, but it was interesting, because as I was thinking about this, I was like, I definitely recognize that phrase. And Jesus uses that phrase, son of the devil. He uses it a couple of times, and one of them is in Matthew 13, in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And I think I actually will read it out. Um, so Jesus says in Matthew 13, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then, do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together into the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. And then a little later on in the, passage, in the chapter, uh, 
Jesus explains the meaning of this, and he says, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, the sons of the devil. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who hears, let him. Sorry, he who has ears, let him hear. So yeah, Jesus uses that term, the sons of the devil, as those who are among the sons of the kingdom. And there's another time as well when um, Jesus uses this phrase, and it's when he's talking to, in John 8, he is talking to the, the, um, the Jews, and even some of them are believers in him, or following him at the time. And they say, they claim that as sons of Abraham, that they're fine, and that they don't actually need much help. And he accuses them, he says, that they are children of their father, the devil. And that does not go down very well. So I just find it really interesting that this is a very harsh phrase, but it was something that Jesus said. And what I thought was really, what really struck me in this passage is what Paul says to, um, what Paul accuses this sorcerer, sorcerer of. What he says to him is, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? You see, this man, he was a Jew and a sorcerer, and he was making God's straight paths crooked. He was going astray himself, but he was also leading other people astray. And, you know, he is well known to this um, proconsul. So he was a, a, a Roman um, officer, well, maybe not an officer, but he was a, a Roman leader. And he had this relationship with a Jew, but it wasn't leading him to God. It was all to do with this sorcery. Um, and Jesus has a lot to say about people who lead others astray. You know, God loves us, and he wants us to go the right way. And he wants us to know him, and he really cares about our relationship with him and our spiritual growth and our position in him. But he cares just as much about everybody else as he does about us. And we have a responsibility to those around us. Um, I was reminded of uh, in, chapter, in Luke chapter 17, verse, verses 1 to 3, Jesus says this. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a milestone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of my little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. So yeah, I think this is something that was, is really important to God, it's really important to Jesus, and I feel like that is part, part way explains 
um, the way that Paul talks to this sorcerer. And so after this, this exchange, then we come to a re- like kind of less familiar territory. We've, we've all read about the supernatural blessings of the Bible. There's lots of supernatural miracles there's, you know, where people are healed, where people are blessed. And here we come to the opposite of that. We come to uh, inflicting blindness. And it's quite an interesting one, I thought. It's maybe probably not so comfortable for us to read about as miraculous blessing. Um, and I guess there's probably quite a lot of this kind of stuff in the Old Testament, not quite so much in the New Testament. But as I was reading it, I was reminded of um, a couple of other episodes in the, in the New Testament, actually. I was thinking about the way that um, Paul, on the road to Damascus, how he experienced blindness. I was also thinking about Zechariah, who's the, the father of John the Baptist, who, when he questioned that he would have a son, John the Baptist, he was made um, dumb. He couldn't talk. Um, and I was just thinking about that. You know, that kind of thing did happen. And I kind of suspect that um, blindness and maybe uh, being mute as well, that they are signs of refusing to see the truth. That, you know, maybe physical blindness here is a consequence of um, spiritual blindness. And it just kind of echoed something that I heard a while ago that I often think about with, you know, Samuel. um, When Samuel was a young boy, he was living in the temple with Eli. And it talks about Eli, but it says that in the time, in those times, they'd become, there weren't many words from God. And it says about how Eli, his sight was waning. And I remember somebody talking about how that was, that was a spiritual and a physical blindness that was coming on. And then here comes Samuel, and he hears God audibly. Um, so yeah, I think there's something to do with this physical blindness and this, this spiritual blindness. But I think it is important to remember that as with Zechariah, as with Paul, these things, they can be overcome. They don't, that's not the be-all and end-all. You know, it says, Paul says to him that he will be blind for a time. And you just do wonder, it doesn't tell us what happens to him later. But who knows what happened to him later? I just felt like there was, um, there's an opportunity in there. You know, Paul... He regained his sight when he was prayed for and when he fully accepted God and when he fully accepted Jesus. And then the Zechariah, who, when he insists that John should be called John by writing it down, that's when he gets his voice back, that actually they are restored. And I think that that speaks of a hope. We don't know what happens to this man, but there is a hope of change. But I, the other thing that I found really interesting in this, though, is the fact that it says then that the proconsul comes to faith, and yeah, the, this this you know blindness it at least contributed to the, this man coming to faith, which is a bit different. You hear about people coming to faith because of a miracle where someone's healed, but actually, it says almost the opposite, and yet it showed God's power. So even though this is a slightly heavy topic we've been looking at in one way, 
it's not really something that we particularly enjoy, but I do think it is necessary for us to think about the consequences of sin, you know, that they can't be ignored. That actually sometimes the some sometimes the spiritual and the physical kind of cross over. Um, and even though we don't really like the to think about the consequences of sin so much. Actually, when it comes down to it, we all, I think everybody in the world actually really wants real justice. We all long for the time when everything will be made right. Everybody wants justice, maybe not for themselves, <laughs> but everybody wants it for, for other people. Um, so it's, it's not something that we can ignore. But I think that in order for us to get to that justice, we have to face things and we have to face our own shortcomings and we have to face opposition and we probably will end up coming into conflict, times of conflict. But I think those things are necessary in order for us to experience what we're really longing for, you know, that we would experience he real healing in ourselves that we'd experience real peace in the world and that we would experience re real reconciliation between ourselves and others. And I guess for me, I, the reason why I read out that weeds and wheat parable earlier, um, weeds and wheat plants, was it kind of just summed up a lot of what I think this passage is about. Um, I thought it was really interesting that God decided to leave the weeds and the wheat in together. But it does say that at the end, there will be a reckoning. And Jesus is coming back. Um, and that in the end, there will be justice. Which I think our world really, really needs. But at the same time, he does leave them in there together. And I think that speaks to me, or suggests to me anyway, of a hope. You know, it says in the Bible that God is holding out as long as he possibly can so that as many of us as possible can get in. And he's so patient with us and with those around us. And whereas before, you know, it used to be about keeping ourselves holy and separate from others in fear of becoming unholy, that's not what it's like anymore. Jesus brought the holy. We bring in holy and we can get rid of the darkness he can drive out the darkness by shining a light through us um, so yeah it's just that idea that actually he's left people here with you know that is why we're still surrounded by opposition and by conflict but that speaks of a hope that they could be changed that they could be an advancing of the kingdom in the lives, in our lives, and the lives of those around us. Okay, well, that's all I've got to share. I think I'll end with a prayer, if that's all right. God, there are parts of the Bible that we love to read, and there are parts that are more difficult. Um, but we want to know you inside and out, God. There's no point taking you... Um, not taking you for all you are. It all marries together. It all fits together perfectly in your plan, Lord.
Thank you that you want absolute justice, absolute peace, absolute healing. But we live in an imperfect world, and sometimes to get there, there will be difficulties. God, help us not to get into silly conflicts which do not reflect well on you. I ask that for myself. Um, but help us to have the conversations that we need to have. Help us not to be more afraid of what other people think of us than we are concerned with glorifying your name. God, thank you for how much you love us. And just help us to draw nearer and nearer to you and understand you more and to become more of who you've made us to be, Lord. For your glory. Amen.